We're dismissed for kids' church. I used to, to for a time, I was a part of a tradition where whenever you would read scripture, you would end with, uh, this is the word of the Lord, and the people would respond, thanks be to God. Um, and this morning, I think, this is the word of the Lord. And we respond, thinking there must be something good in this. Uh, thanks be to God for this odd and interesting portion of scripture. Um, something from the psalmist and from other portions we sort of hold dear is that thanks be to God for this odd portion of the word. Now, I love, Chris, that you read from the message this morning because there might be some of you being like, I bet this makes sense in the message, right? Uh, Eugene Peterson is not uh, injecting his own words into most of that translation, and so what happens when he gets to a portion like this is he just translates it like everybody else does. Um, now, one of the things that you probably noticed is that this morning's, um, this morning's sort of portion of scripture sounds a lot like last week's scripture. Jonathan, you read last week. Do you notice any differences at all, really? Uh, more specific animals. More specific animals. One of my favorite ones, and, and we'll get to this a little bit later in the sermon, is that birds aren't included in this one, and that's because there's not enough meat on a bird. This is... This is one where you sort of get meat from it. And so a bird, if you were like, bring a bird to the altar, split it with the priest, and everybody else gather there, you're not getting a lot of meat from, from the bird. So the practical realities of Leviticus are real. That's just what I mean to say about that is, is it doesn't sort of like be like, oh, so it's not singling people out. Now, now this, this offering, this peace offering, actually comes up in 7 and a little bit later in the book of Leviticus. So as I, as I walk sort of through the peace offering, it's going to be... Um, I'm going to be injecting material that wasn't in Chris's reading, but that's only because it comes from other portions, and you can't imagine me trying to preach on this twice. Um, so we're going to do it just once, and I'm just going to bring the other material uh, for us. One of the things we talked about last time about allowing birds is that it, was, it allowed for the poor to sort of have a piece in that. Um, it didn't, poor people rarely had flocks and herds and all that. But what it actually says later is for a certain kind of this offering, you can actually bring forward sort of a defective animal. Um, you can bring forward uh, an, a cow that isn't uh, unblemished and perfect and such. And so it allows for place too for those who don't have means to participate in this offering as well. But before we get far, last week we did sort of the shakedown sermon, as I called it, and I said we'll get to structure, and this is the first Sunday I want to talk a little bit about some of the structure of the book as we move before it, through it. Up on the top, you'll see that there are the verse numbers of the chapters of the book of Leviticus. And then down on the side, you'll see these three sort of major concepts that as we move through the book, ritual, priesthood, and purity. So we are in one through seven, and so... I'll, I'll just move it once. So try to remember that the goat obviously looks like a sacrifice. The guy is the priest. And purity symbolized by, it's like water, a washing of uncleanliness. What happens is the book begins to structure out like this after you begin to go through it. Is, is that the, the ritual part is both at the beginning and at the end of the book. There are instructions on ritual. Then you get to the priesthood part, which we get to in the next section. That's both at the beginning half of the book and then at the end of the book. And then there's this sort of purity law portion that, that forms right before 15 uh, or 16 and 17 or just 16, depending on how you want to divide the book up, and then begins right after. Now, the last half of the book pretty much makes up what's called the holiness code. So 
The last three symbols up there are pretty much would be bracketed under the holiness code, but they at least walk through the same material in sort of the same format that the beginning of the well reverse as it does in the beginning of the book. And then what happens in the middle of this book is this day of atonement, the sacrifice day that, that we'll probably spend two Sundays on. It sort of stands as its own in the center of this book. And so that's sort of a little bit about the structure on where we're going. And so we'll do actually one more Sunday, if you're, if you're excited and ready for it, in the ritual portion before we move to the priesthood portion. Because one of the reasons for that is, is that these first three sacrifices are all voluntary sacrifices. And so we're skipping one. But they're all sacrifices that, that come voluntarily out of who we are towards God. That I think is unique in, in that we think that Christian worship comes first sort of out of obligation. But even the book of Leviticus doesn't begin with obligation. You must do these things. It begins with sacrifices you offer voluntarily to God. Ones that you feel called to bring. Ones that sort of you would bring naturally to the life of God. And so that's sort of where these three sacrifices fit. The, the burnt offering, which we did last Sunday, the cereal offering, which we're skipping, and then the, the peace, shalom, uh, thanks, well-being offering that we have this Sunday. And those three offerings sort of move in that way. But one of the things to say about that Matthew reading that Brian read for us, that Jesus says that not jot or tittle is, is the way that King James puts it, which is the two sort of smallest Marks in our language uh, will be removed from the scriptures, but that he comes to fulfill it. I think this is a challenge for Christian readers of the Bible, is that we so often want to be like, well, these things don't matter anymore, and these things don't, don't need anymore. It's like if somebody were to ask you, um, you know, if you're going to go see the second um, Avengers movie, do I have to have seen the first one? If you asked a lot of Christians, like, well, I want to read the Bible, and I want to read the New Testament, do I have to read the first one? Lots of Christians would be like, no, you're fine. There's, you'd be fine without it. But what actually what Jesus is saying, Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, is that he comes not to abolish any of this, not even the smallest portions of it, but to fulfill them. Now, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus does is he goes into the ethical territory right after that. He talks about hate and lust and divorce and says that these things were here, but really what the fulfillment of the law is, is it looks like this. Now, most of those are ethical categories, but I think one of the things that should surprise us as Christian readers of the book of Leviticus is to understand how Jesus functions for us as both our, our priest, um, as our sacrifice, and as the one who is God and ascends to God, would be deeply helpful to have read and spent time with the book of Leviticus, knowing that it's not an easy book. This chapter is like, I'm, I would love to see like people who sign up for digital Bible reading plans like a graph on where they all die and end, like Leviticus 3, the second time you're going through, half the people who started a Bible in a year plan drop off for a little bit. Um, because it is repetitive, and it is hard, and it's not always quite clear to us why they're doing these things. But I think it's an important thing for us to keep in mind as we walk through this book, is that even for Jesus, there's this idea that none of these things are going to be abolished or wiped out, but they're going to be fulfilled through who he is. So this morning, we're going to be talking about this peace offering. And, it, and from later in the book, it says that it comes in sort of three ways, this offering. There's a free will offering. I'm just freely giving this. There's one that you would give when you fulfilled or somebody else fulfilled a vow. 
Um, I said I was going to travel to this place and I came back. I was going to deliver this message, pay this debt, whatever it is you would give sort of as a response to a vow being fulfilled. And then the last one is sort of just a thanksgiving offering that I feel an overwhelming thanksgiving for something in my life. Normally it's rescue or being saved from a, a sickness or something like that, that you would offer this one for that. And none of them are commanded, but they are uh, sort of the three categories we have for this offering. And you shall eat them rejoicing before the Lord, is what the book of Deuteronomy says about these three offerings. Just different than those first two. This one is to be eaten and offered in joy. Now, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is this one from the book of Nehemiah, which we've, we've sort of circle around before just because I love it so much, is that Ezra, they find sort of the book of the law, which is an interesting part of the book. They generally think, scholars, that it's Deuteronomy, but whatever book it is they find, and they begin to read it to the people. Ezra begins to read it to people. And the people begin to weep. People begin to see what they've done wrong and how they've turned against the way that God has been for them. And what happens is, is Nehemiah stops Ezra's reading and he says to the people that this is the day of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And he commands them to sort of have a feast, to not sit there weeping as they hear this, but to, but to come with joy for this. It's so often that we think about the Christian life as something that sort of happens um, out of life in which we confess. Confession plays a huge role in our faith. Um, feeling bad about sins we've committed, and then responding to God and receiving forgiveness takes a lot of different forms. But that's, at least for me, one of the patterns of the faith that I grew up with that was sort of given to us. But the idea that, that confronted with God's holiness, confronting with the God who wants to meet with us, even when we know we've done wrong, that we might respond with joy, that we might respond with feast, actually seems lost on me for some reason. And I think what that story says and what this offering says here at the beginning of the book of Leviticus is it's building these five sort of preliminary offerings, the, the, um, the burnt, the cereal, the peace, and then two about the forgiveness of sins, which are, uh, so three voluntary and two non-voluntary, sorry, um, is that joy plays sort of the central middle part of it. There's a part of joy in our life. And, and there's, this, there's this Christian thinker like who always says, it's a pity that the Christians aren't known often enough for the parties that they can throw. Um, he made it his mission as a pastor to throw good parties for people. And if you see and follow in Jesus' ministry, when we walked through the Gospel of Mark last year, it seemed like Jesus was almost always with people at meals and at gatherings. He was always with people in this time of sort of of partying. And so what happens for us today is I hope that we can begin to realize that in these, these sacrifices of, of peace offerings, that we can realize that the joy of the Lord is our strength. That, that this joy that we come here is actually the part of the way in which we have strength in the world. It's easy to think you can have strength all sort of different ways, but having strength through joy, I think, is new to me at least. And what happens in this offering is similar to the last one, is they lay hands on it, and then they, uh, the person bringing it forward isn't called to slaughter it and sort of let its life loose. People were interested last week in sort of that the life is in the blood. 
that's a passage that comes later in the Bible, is that, or later in the book of Leviticus, is that the sacrifices are opening up the life of the blood, and that the blood of the animal represents or is its life being spread out. And so what they do with this one is they release its life, and then what happens is, is then the priest sort of slaughters it. But in this time, in Jonathan's first offering, all the, all the animal was burnt. None of it was left. But in this one, there's specific instructions about the fat and sort of the kidneys in some way. If there's something helpful here that will help us as we move through the rest of the book of Leviticus, is that both the, these entrails and this fat portion is about sort of this idea of life and death. So when we get to the purity laws, lots of the purity laws seem very weird. Why this with this part of the animal? Why this with this discharge? Why this with this skin disease? And really what it has to do with this, 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 this sort of theme that runs through the book of Leviticus is that things that deal with life are good. Things that come from life are good. Things that are associated with death become sort of unclean as we move through the book. And so what we see here in, in this portion where these two things are offered back to God is that the kidneys in this time, not our time, were thought of as sort of the seabed of thought and emotion. They were sort of where your reflective sort of power lived. And so this way it's sort of offering that back to God. If it has to do with that much of life, it goes back to God. The fat, and this is that there's details about the fat that we don't need to get into, but it's not all the fat in the animal. Like, you have to cut out um, all the marbling of the ribeye before you can eat the ribeye. It's not, it's not that. There's specific portions of, of fat that are supposed to be taken out, and there's two reasons for that. One is that it seems to sort of be saying is that the best goes to God. In this society, fat was like butter and oil for them. And so that these big fatty portions are things that go up to God. They're offered back to God. The second thing is that fat comes out of um, being cared for, of having. So like if your animal is fat, has big fat portions within it, it's because God has provided for you. I mean, we, we know this in our own lives, generally speaking. Oh, the world history, let's not say our own lives. Cheap food is what gets us fat nowadays in a lot of ways. Um, and, and historically speaking, it was only the wealthy who had the means to get large. Um, and so we know this, that, like, that there's a point of care that comes in being able to have the time to, to grow, to have more to you. And that's the same with animals. And so that these two portions go back to God in this section. And so what we have here is this, is this offering that's offered in this place of peace and shalom. Now, most of you are probably familiar with that the Hebrew word for peace is, is shalom. And it makes the root of this offering that in some translations might be called the well-being offering. And I think that helps us get to the point that for the Hebrews, this shalom word, this peace word, is much more expansive than our word peace. So like if we were, if you were following the hope of peace in North Korea this past week, what it would mainly mean is um, disarmament, um, maybe some more free trade between them, um, and it would be sort of a, um, a de-escalation of conflict, right? But the Hebrew word peace actually has this more robust revision into sort of well-being. 
of being provided for, of, of it's not just the absence of conflict, it's assumed that conflict has decided, but also that you're cared for emotionally and physically and spiritually. That relationship has been restored beyond we're not going to kill each other anymore. They have a much higher bar for, for peace talks, I would say, is that if you were to say, well, these are shalom talks, then it would be a different story about what we would expect from that. They would expect um, uh, hugs. You would expect care for one another. You would expect compassion and sort of a peace talk in the, in the, uh, the Hebrew sense with this word. And so this peace offering represents sort of this fullness of this voluntary gift you give to the Lord out of joy. It represents more than just the absence of conflict or even conflict receding. And it's interesting to think about is that like if I were to offend Kelly, which I never have, don't ask her after the service if I have, and to come and offer a gift to her to say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have offended you in that way. That's actually a different offering in the book of Leviticus. That's more like a trespass offering. But if I were to say, you know, this Saturday... Um, let's put the kids down to bed and then sit on our back deck and break open uh, a nice bottle of wine or some nice chocolates or whatever and sit on the back deck and talk and be with one another and share that life and reflect in the fullness of the life that God has given us. That's actually what a peace offering is. That it's not just this, I've offended, therefore I need forgiveness, but it's this time to sort of rejoice in the fellowship of what God is. And so for us, I think one of the first questions about that is, is not almost, has, have we ever done it with God, but given that example, have I ever done that with Kelly? <laughs> in, in our relationships, whether it's, your, whether it's your parents, your coworkers that you really enjoy, your friends, have you ever been at that point where you're like, let's just take some time and reflect in the fullness and goodness of life that we have. Part of preaching, that's always confession, at least if you sit through my sermons, in which it's not often enough have I done that. It's the answer for my marriage, it's the answer for with my family, it's the answer for with... I mean, we can celebrate big events pretty well, um, which I give... I mean, that's a star, right? Um, but... To celebrate just a day, to celebrate the goodness of which the life his God has given us, to sort of sit with someone and just take that, and even just to have the carelessness about it to say that this is a time where we just be together. Rarely if, you know, if I want to meet with somebody, if I want to take somebody out at the church who's, who's been doing a lot and I'm really enjoying them, I feel like, well, we should accomplish something. Um, we should get something done. We should at least talk something about what we're supposed to talk about. But rarely does it become from this place of sort of sitting in the fullness of fellowship. The question of whether we've done that with other people is important, but then to think about whether we've done that with God, which is really what's at the root of this offering. And that's a, that's a so not well in the first box. I would say pretty much not well in the second box as well. Um, and, and here's the challenge of this one, is that, is that this offering here is not one that you practice at home. You go to the tabernacle to offer this offering. And the meat that's left over from it, which is eaten both by the priest and the people gathered, is um, eaten together. And so when you think about this, I offer this to God. 
When I think about having these type of celebrations, I think about who would I like to invite, not who happens to be assembled around the altar that will partake in this with me. It's a much different question, because, because when I think about celebration, if I think about like what would a well-being offering look like with my giving something to God and inviting people to partake in it, I would be like, well, I want these people there because they're a lot of fun and this, that, and the other. But in ancient Near East Israel, when you go to the altar, it's the people there. I should note it's the priest, so if you do it, you should invite your pastor. That's first. First example is you should obviously invite your pastor because he gets one of, I think he gets the breast and something else from the animal. Um, <laughs> but more importantly, it's the people who are gathered there. It's people who might have, and if you read the, the passage slowly, you notice it's on top of the other offerings. It's people who might have offered things for the forgiveness of sins. They might have offered something dealing with a trespass. They're, they're, the other people surrounding the altar might be there, not in that state of mind. And yet here you've brought this goat, this cow, and you've offered it, and now everybody's going to eat meat. It should be noted that in the ancient Near East, meat was more unique. You didn't eat meat all the time. There's some evidence scholars say that almost all the butchering at one point in Israel pretty much happened in one of these sort of three spheres. That this was the place that you would offer that meat. And what you're doing is you're bringing forth it and sharing it with the community of God that's been called out of the desert. You're sharing it with people who you may not have picked to sort of rejoice in the way in which you have peace and fellowship with God. It's a lot. But there's one or two other points I want to just mention fast. One is that we often undercut ritual a lot in our churches, um, particularly Protestant churches. We don't have a lot of time for ritual. One of my favorite sort of examples of thinking about the ways in ritual and body practices form us is that on the one side of the spectrum, we have Catholic and Orthodox churches, which have kneeling and smelling and um, uh, incense and, and all sorts of elements moving forward, going out, um, all sorts of things that become part of your service to sort of enact in your body, right? And it should be clear at this point, if you're doing any of these offerings, you don't get to sit away. You have to, like, kill an animal. So let's say Catholic, whatever Christian service you're part of is not as extreme as the book of Leviticus. But on the other side of the coin, we have, like, charismatic services where, like, people wave flags and they roll on the ground and they raise their hands and modern charismatics will laugh and... Uh, cry, and, and there'll be oils and healings at those too, right? And then we have like the largest percentage, well, Catholics are huge, but like the largest percentage of Protestantism that does almost nothing, which I, always surprises me. Because there's a lot we could do. There's a lot in the Bible. I will stand, I will rise up, I will sing, I will anoint with oil. Uh, it smells pleasing to the Lord and the temple. There are all sorts of things we could do, and yet most of us forget about the aspect that as body things, it's important to bring our bodies and lives into worship with God. And I was joking with Ray and Kim after the service that people say, well, these passions are hard to teach on. And on my second Sunday, I would say, yes, they are hard to teach on. But if you think if you're the young son of an Israelite, and he says, Hey, grab the pretty cow, and we're going to go to the tabernacle and kill it. Depending on the sacrifice, we might burn all of the pretty cow. We might, uh, because it's the unblemished one. I mean, it's like, this is the cow that you'd be like, that's the one that goes to, um, 
I'm showing my city roots. 4-H, is that what it's called? Yes, 4-H. This is, this is the one that goes and wins a prize at the 4-H fair. And what this one is, you say to him, okay, get the one that you would win your prize with, grab that cow, and we're gonna go take it to this place. I'm gonna lay my hand on it, and I'm gonna kill it. You think about the memory that that would impose on a young person. Participating in the faith that way, it may be hard to teach, but if you were actually invited into a religion like that, where you walk the things that you have up into the altar and, and you sacrifice and lay them bare, that would be something, I think, influential. It reminds me, as we think of faith formation for families here, is, that, is to ask the question of, uh, a youth speaker was speaking, she said, one of the things I encourage parents to do is just do one thing a month, a week, a year, whatever you, you come to, and for whatever reason you do it, just tell your kids and your coworkers and your friends and neighbors it was because of God. So like if you give up Mondays, you turn off Monday night football and you go and work at a soup kitchen, you would tell people, well, you know, it's nice, right? And I feel like we should get back. This is what most Christians will do when they start to do something nice, is, well, I feel like we should get back. Or it's good for my kids, or this, that, and the other. But what if the only reason that you gave for this, particularly to, to people who might be interested in why you're doing this, is that it's an offering to the Lord? It creates space for different kinds of conversations. I mean, one, think about it as true, don't lie. Um, but two, I think that that creates different spaces. It's, and I think for young people, it becomes sort of the thing like the cow. There's not a whole lot of reason, even if you were to sit down with the book of Leviticus with your child and be like, this is why we do this. And he, you would, if he's like us, would be like, yeah, okay, but why? Um, why do we walk this way? Why do we offer it in this way? Because it's how we respond to the God who has rescued us from Egypt. It's how we respond to the God who has brought us into new life. It's how we meet with God. So the New Testament says that Christ is our peace, that Jesus is our peace offering. No, I joked about this last Sunday with some people, is that, that if you read early church commentaries on this book, um, I think it was Origen or, uh, who wrote one of the longest, he's always like, and see, it's Jesus. And I was like, apparently his congregation never got sick of the trick of like, well, you see, Jesus is this. But it's a beautiful, I think, and hopeful thing, too, to say. I mean, it may get repetitive, which is why it's not the longest part of the sermon for us. Um, try not to bore you. Um, but Jesus is our peace. And not only that, if you look at the history of offerings in the Bible up until this point, Cain and Abel with violence, Noah after the flood, uh, Abraham, when he almost sacrifices his son and God provides the ram instead. If you look at them, they all come out of these places of division. We are not God. The book of Leviticus. We're entering into the sphere of the holy God. And so what to say when Jesus is our peace, if you're familiar with that passage, it says, but, Christ, we were, but now in Christ you were once far away who have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. And this is the part that I think is important. Who has made two groups one. He's made two differences one. In this passage, Paul is speaking of Jew and Gentile. He's also speaking of Cain and Abel. 
of those who have been wiped out by the flood and those who haven't, of those who find themselves on the outside and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace. That Christ becomes our peace offering means that we can sit and be with God. Which the most important part of this, which we'll end with, is that this is a meal in which God is the host. Ancient Near East religions had this way of sacrifice in which maybe you fed God or you invited God to this banquet. But for us to participate in this feast, you have to go to temple. In some ways, you have to go to church to participate in this feast. If you should be clear at this moment that maybe I'm talking about this feast, the one we partake in in communion. But you have to go to this place to participate in this feast. And what happens in this offering is that it's given back to God. You brought the animal and gave it to God. And what happens when you get meat back is God shares it with you and those there. You're not earning favor with this God. You're not making new things. What you're actually doing is giving God this whole thing. And because it comes out of joy... It comes out of this gift of responding to what God has done. God creates a space for you to enjoy it with him. God is the host at this meal. And it should be noted that, that all of these sacrifices talk about a future. The moment these are people who will wander the desert for quite a long time. But if you think about the grain offering and the offering and the animals, it speaks of a day in which we have our rest in God. Someday, they'll make it to the promised land. And someday, they'll have flocks and fields and grain. But God has a future for us in this meal and in this time, as he calls this out, is good news for us. And it's the way in which God becomes our peace. Let us pray. God, you have given us this odd and wondrous book. It's of this book that your son speaks, that nothing will be abolished, but each of it shall be fulfilled. That Christ is our peace offering, that he is the sacrifice and the mediator and the one who ascends to God the one who is without blemish, the one who repairs and makes one, the one who offers in joy, according to the book of Hebrews, is good news for us. May we in our lives and in our relationships and our friendships and care for one another find time to offer up to you good things. May we have the time and the place to sit back and enjoy them with others, both of our own choosing, but also who happen to be around the altar. Be with us now. Strengthen us according to your faith.
guide us into your works. Amen.